Is this on? Okay, good. Good. Well, I'm glad you're here today on this Labor Day weekend. I want to talk to you this morning about this reading from Isaiah, Isaiah 35. And the big idea today is do not fear, trust in God. Do not fear, trust in God. Um, Isaiah 35 is a, is a really wonderful chapter. It's very short. My life application Bible footnotes says this. In chapters 1 through 34, Isaiah has delivered a message of judgment on all nations, including Israel and Judah, for rejecting God. Although there have been glimpses of relief and restoration for the remnant of faith, faithful believers, the climate of wrath, fury, judgment, and destruction has prevailed. Now Isaiah breaks through in a, with a vision of beauty and encouragement. God is just as thorough in his mercy as he is severe in his judgment. And I'd have to say, um, Isaiah loves contrast. So in chapter 34, Edom is going from very fruitful and wonderful and thriving to desolate. The deserts are, are everywhere. Things get overrun. And in 35, he says the desert will become rich and flourishing. We read 4 through 7 today, and chapter, or verse 3 of this chapter says, Strengthen the weak hands and make the firm the feeble knees. <clears throat> Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Because weak hands and feeble knees can't do the things that they should. And very often when we're feeling weak and struggling, we, uh, it's because of fear. It's because of fear. There are things out there happening that we don't understand, we can't predict, we don't know how things are going to end, we feel overwhelmed, and so we get a little shaky. Fear takes the strength from a person. Uh, back in Isaiah's day, Assyria was on the move, and there was no help for Judah. What are we going to do? So a time of fear and trembling was also a sign of disbelief. Where is God? You ever feel like that? Where is God? Things are happening in my life right now I don't understand, but, but Lord, I've been faithful. Where, where are you? Why aren't you here? I feel like uh, maybe it was the way that the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel were feeling with Elijah, and they were running around that altar trying to get it to burst into flames, and they're tearing their clothes, and they're cutting themselves, and all these sorts of things, and Elijah's teasing them and taunting them. Uh, maybe he's on vacation. Uh, maybe he's having breakfast. Or maybe he's out for a potty break, which is what he said, actually. And they're all feeling, uh, we don't understand. Sometimes we feel like that as well. Um, maybe Gideon felt like that. In the book of Judges, Gideon is going against 150,000 Midianites with 37,000 Israelites. He is completely outnumbered. Um, and God says this, Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him re return home. And Gideon tested them, 22,000 returned home and 10,000 remained. 22,000 of the 32,000 said, I'm out, I'm done, I'm not going to participate, see you later, have a nice day. Finally, he gets down to 300 
And God says, these are the ones that I want. These are the ones who can get the job done against 150,000 Midianites. And they did it because God was on their side. I was thinking about those numbers the other day. Um, in our modern day, you had 300,000 in the Afghan army, and you had 75,000 Taliban. And if you actually divide the number of Midianites uh, by 30, 150 by 37, it comes out to four. And when you divide 300,000 by 75,000, it comes out to four. Initially, they both had four times the opponent. And in Afghanistan, you had a much more well-armed, trained group going up against a less well-armed group, but they lost because they, I think they were afraid. They didn't even put up a fight. So fear does not help. Greg Laurie writes this. Through stories like Gideon's, God makes it abundantly clear that he can do more with a few committed folks than he can with thousands who are following him only half-heartedly. Today, God is still looking around to see who he really has. He is seeking those men and women who will follow him with total abandon against all odds, without questioning his direction or his methods. And then John Wesley, <clears throat> the founder of Methodism, who died an Anglican, yes, thank you, gives me a, give me a hundred men who love God with all their hearts and fear nothing but sin, and I will move the world. I think there's truth in that. Here's a quote from Theodore Roosevelt. President Roosevelt once said, it is not the critic who counts, nor the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows, knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know, not, who know neither defeat nor victory. When it push comes to shove, God's want God wants people who are completely, totally, utterly committed to him. I was saying in the Bible study this morning, when I was walking on the beach all those years ago, 2007, one of the things God said was, more people will be unfaithful to me than will be faithful because being faithful will cost too much. And that's, I think that's always been true, and it's still true, <clears throat> still true today. In verse 4, he says, Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. He is really encouraging people not to be fearful, again. Um, and as Moses is, is charging Joshua, as he's getting ready to take over from Moses, uh, then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall go with the people into the land which the Lord has, has sworn that to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them out, put, in, put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. 
He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Whenever I sign a, a you know, I, I, I give a book, or a, I mean a prayer book or a Bible to someone like at confirmation, I always cite this verse, Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage, be not frightened, neither be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You just need to, to read that, to know it, to believe it. To the feeble and fearful, uh, Isaiah says, Behold your God, he is coming to execute vengeance on your enemies. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, Whatever you do, you need courage. Whatever course you decide upon, there is always someone to tell you that you were wrong. There are always difficulties arising that tempt you to believe your choice, choice, your critics are right. To map out a course of action and follow it to an end requires some of the same courage that a soldier needs. Peace has its victories, but it takes brave men and women to win them. And James Deloach wrote this, I'm not a connoisseur of great art, but from time to time a painting or picture will really speak a clear, strong message to me. Some time ago, I saw a piece of an old burned-out mountain shack. All that remained was the chimney, the charred debris of what had been that family's sole possession. In front of this destroyed home stood an old grandfather-looking grandfather, grandfather man, dressed only in his underclothes with a small boy clutching a pair of patched overalls. It was evident that the child was crying. Beneath the picture were the words which the artist felt the old man was speaking to the boy. They were simple words, yet they presented a profound theology and philosophy of life. Those words were, hush child, God ain't dead. No matter what it looks like, no matter how it seems, God ain't dead. He is still here. He's still with us. He's still alive. I want to do just three quick things before I get to the rest of this because this chapter is so amazing. It is actually um, messianic. When John the Baptist's guys come to talk to Jesus, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, are you the one? This is what he says. He says, are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you, uh, are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he urged many of the diseases and he cured many of the diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many that were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and this dear uh, deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and the blessed is he who takes no offense at me. And then you read, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a heart and the tongue of the dumb sing for joy. When Jesus responds to John the Baptist's friends, he is quoting Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. And then it says, The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp, and the grass shall become reeds and rushes. 
for the waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Anybody heard of, ever heard of streams in the desert? Right? It's from that verse. It was writ written by L.B. Calvin in 1925, and she was a missionary to Asia. And I read that in a commentary, and I went and got my copy of Streams in the Desert, and I looked on the cover, and it was her name. It came from these, this verse in Isaiah 35. And then we have this. And the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting shall be upon their heads. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness, joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You may have heard that before. you think about it, it's an amazing chapter. It's only 10 verses long, but there's just so much there. That was kind of a parenthetical statement just because I was so taken by what was in the, ch in the, in the chapter. I want to get back to the fear not. Israel was living in a time when they had a relationship with God. And it was in the book of Judges, for example, it's, it's, I always look at it like a clock. And when the hand is straight up, they're in sync with God, right? They're in relationship with God. They're faithful. They're following him. No separation. And then things start to happen. They start moving away from him. They start being closer and closer to the culture than they are to him. 
and it continues to kind of go down this way. And they get further away from God and closer to the culture until at the bottom it's really bad and they cry out, save us, redeem us, help us. And then God does and they start to come back to him in a way. They start to mend their ways and start to come back to God. And I'm curious, I'm wondering now, where, are, where is America? Where are we on that clock? How close are we to six? And I look at some things that, and, that are going on in our culture, and I say to myself, is that godly? Is it godly? Life is very different, country's very different than it was just 55 years ago. 55 years ago, it was 1966, I graduated from high school that year. What I remember back then were the Vietnam protests. You know, that was pretty severe in those days. What we see now is God being edged out of society. We see the country becoming more and more secular. Now, there are, we talked about this in the Bible study a little bit, there are Art Greenleaf is a missionary. He's, he's a Wycliffe Bible translator guy. And he says now it's true in parts of the world, the faith is really growing strong. Iran, fastest growing place in the world for the church. Afghanistan was number two. We'll see how that goes. But in various places you probably would not expect, the church is getting stronger. But in Western Europe, it's really on, it's, it's on life support. And then the question is, what's happening here? What's going on in the United States? Um, the country's becoming more and more secular, for sure. In fact, 70 churches close every day. 70 churches close every day. Is that a godly thing? I look at 1973 with Roe v. Wade, and since then, 60 million or more children, babies, have been killed, aborted. Is that godly? I look at this sexual revolution with the LGBTQ, the whole thing of transgenders. God made them male and female. Didn't make them 52. Made them two. Now you say that, that's bad. Marriage has changed. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. That's marriage. Not what the culture says it is. All these gender choices. Dancing with the Stars is blazing a new trail. They're going to have two women as partners this next season. That's exciting. You know, break down that door. It's the normalization of this kind of thing. And I ask myself, are, are these godly developments? This idea of being woke kind of awakened to a new sense of social justice in the world, mainly having to do right now with race. Uh, it's being uh, done in schools, media, government, corporations. American Express came out this week and said, we're intentionally becoming less white. American Express, we're becoming less white. And I think to myself, is that a godly choice? Is that a godly thing? The idea of social media and cancel culture. When you have an, when you have an opinion that doesn't, doesn't go with the culture or the narrative, it doesn't get heard. Freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is really a God-given right to express ourselves, you know, to preach the gospel, for example. 
will that someday become hate speech? Because we're telling people, you know what, you're not okay. That will make them feel bad, and we can't have that. And I ask myself, is that a godly development? Race relations. Not sure I've seen it worse than it is today. There's a thing called critical race theory, which uh, you judge people by the color of their skin, not the content of their character. Basically, you have two groups, the oppressor and the oppressed, the victim and the victimizer. Right now, it's based on race. It used to be based on the economy. Is this a godly development where we pit people against one another based on a characteristic they can't control? It is not a godly thing. The idea of an atheist chaplain being the head chaplain at Harvard. Father Tom sent me a very interesting article on that. I thought that was good. There was an evangelical uh, chaplain at Harvard who was trying to make the case that this was a good choice. I read the article. I'm still shaking my head that an atheist could be the president of the chaplains at Harvard, no matter how much they like him. In education, uh, things like history, the 1619 Project. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the 1619 Project. That came out last year from the New York Times. And it said the United States was not founded in 1776. It was founded in 1619 because that's when the first slave ship arrived, rather than 1776, when men and women of, of God, and these were faithful Christian people, based this country on Judeo-Christian principles. Even liberal historians say that the 1619 idea is crazy, it's absurd, it doesn't make any sense, and it's not true. But it is still being taught to our children in schools, 1619 versus 1776. Slavery versus Judeo-Christian principles. Is this godly? How to undermine the future of people. In Oregon, they have eliminated math and reading requirements for high school graduation out of a sense of, we want to help you, I guess. I don't know. How does that help somebody succeed? Is that a godly thing to do? The destruction of the nuclear family. The destruction of the nuclear family. In the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and even 50s, the percentage of black single homes was 9%. Now it's 79%. Was that a godly set of choices that allowed that to happen? Now we say a family is whatever you want it to be. God's family is a mother, a father, and their children. Mom, dad, and the kids. That's a godly understanding of family. That's what makes nations strong. That's what makes communities strong. That's what raises strong, godly children. COVID. Lots of issues there. The number one comorbidity that contributes to COVID death right now at 30% is obesity. The number two comorbidity at 28% that leads to COVID death is fear and anxiety, soon to be the number one comorbidity. Never even thought about this before. Fear and anxiety is contributing to the death of people who have this disease. 
That's what we're talking about today. Well, there's good news. The good news is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is true. God wins. Jesus has, some, has come to save us, and the Holy Spirit, are, Spirit is real, and he is moving. Fear not. And we need to embrace that. We need to know that. We need to believe that. We need to share that good news with people in our lives because there's so much other stuff coming at us. I, this morning was just kind of a partial list of, of the things that are out there, and it can be very depressing, and the enemy wants us to be depressing and downcast, but don't do it. Don't do it. God is real. I really believe that another great awakening is already taking place. It is starting on the West Coast, and now it's getting, getting rolling in western New York State. People coming to faith in Jesus Christ who never had any interest in Jesus Christ before, and I believe it's going to grow. And I believe people who never thought about God are going to start coming to faith in him. But I really believe now more than ever, God's people need to be awake, aware, on our knees. We need to be praying for our nation and the world. We need to be crying out to God for his intervention and his strength. I, um, I wrote a letter, and it was from me. It wasn't from the church. It was from me. Um, I wrote it to about 80 clergy in Ocala. I've never done anything like this before. I write letters to the editor, but this is different. Dear friends, I'm writing to you today to encourage you to talk to your people regarding the upcoming election in Ocala on September 21st. I know that not all of you are within the city limits, but many of your people are, and they need to exercise their civic and godly duty to vote. In the past, pastors have shied away from the topic of elections because they do not want to be seen as political, or for some, is the conflict of the separation of church and state. In both cases, these concerns are unwarranted. Advocating for godly leaders is not being political, it's being biblical. Exercising our right to vote and encouraging our people to do so is not a violation of church and state. It is simply calling our folks to participate in this democratic process. At the risk of sounding extreme, I want to say that this is the most important mayoral recollection in the history of Ocala. Does that sound like hyperbole? It is not. We have a choice between a man with a proven track record of success in our community who shares our values and beliefs and someone who does not share our vision for Ocala and is associated with people and organizations that are antithetical to our beliefs and values. She personally funds the most radical politicians of the nation and is being funded by radical forces for her own mayoral campaign. It is an obvious choice. Please encourage your people to register to vote. The deadline for registration is September 11th. There's only one day of in-person voting, September 21st. Every vote is critical. We need all of your people who are eligible to vote to participate. The stakes are high, and it is a close race. There are three Sundays left before Election Day. Please encourage your people to, to get out and vote. Thank you for your time, and may God continue to bless your ministry.
but I didn't get any responses. Interesting. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Um, that was true then, and it is true now more than ever. And uh, fear is something that the enemy uses to control people. Fear leads to control. Control leads to power. And we need to be aware of that. All right? So now I'm going to play Vitalis' favorite video.
Fear not. Trust God. Amen.